0: Joshua chapter 10, a continuation from last week. We're not going to finish the chapter this week. We'll just move a little further in it. Joshua 10, all right, let's pray. Lord, would you please anoint now this time of Bible study? Lord, I I come to you just wonderfully and horribly aware of my inadequacy. And my inability and my unworthiness to do what you've called me to do. My my little part in the body. My portion. I, I rejoice in my weakness because in my weakness your strength is made perfect. And so Lord just as I would pray that everyone as they do their part in the body in their ministry. As I would pray that they would be anointed. We would pray now with one mind and one accord that I would be anointed. At this portion. Because we don't want to hear the opinions of men. We don't want to hear the ramblings of men. We want the living, active Word of God. And we want it to have a wonderful effect in our lives. Lord, would you help me to rightly divide the Word? Thank you that you have invested in your Word tremendous power and authority. We ask together that the Word would go forth with power and authority today. And Lord, as we've opened our Bibles, we ask that you'd open our hearts. You would have us know just what you would have us know. Lord, that you'd revive us this morning. Lord, that you would, by your Holy Spirit, make us aware of any place where we've given the enemy ground. We've been in this book now for weeks about warfare and coming against the enemy, and you've been training our hands for battle. And you say to us, just like you said to David, that, that you can cause us to run upon a troop, and with you we could leap over a wall, that one of us could put a thousand to flight. We just ask that you continue to train our hands for battle, that we would not be ignorant of the schemes of the enemy. Thank you that Jesus Christ, you have given us authority in your name over the enemy. We ask that today you would instruct us as to how to walk in that authority, as to how to wield that authority. We don't want to give the enemy any more ground. He is defeated. We want him to be defeated in this community and in our individual lives. And so we ask for a training now by the work of the Holy Spirit that you would train us, Lord, for righteousness and for right living and for warfare against our unseen foe. Make us very wise. Make us bold. You haven't given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and a sound mind. Come, Holy Spirit, move in your people. Bless the teaching of your word for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Well, we left off last week with Joshua being in the battle of his life. You'll remember that he was coming up against the five Amorite kings who had united in a confederacy against the Gibeonites. And the Gibeonites had appealed to Joshua and said, will you please come and help us? And Joshua won up with the Israelites and the mighty men of war who were ready for battle. And they're engaged in the battle of their lives. And you'll remember that as they were fighting with a sword, the Lord was throwing hailstones from heaven on the enemy. And it put the enemy on the run. But then Joshua was wanting the victory today. I love that. Great leader. He, he looked at the Israelites and the Gibeonites and then the enemy and he said, We want the victory today. We don't want this thing to go on any longer. We want the victory today. And as a leader, he was able to deduce what would be needed for the victory. And he said in his little corazón, his little heart, we need more daylight. And so as a just awesome man of faith, with a childlike faith, he came to the Lord and said, Lord, would you just stop the sun in the sky and just give us more daylight? And you know what? The Lord did it. You have not because you ask not. And he said, we're going to need more daylight if we're going to get the victory today. And he went to the Lord, and the Lord extended the daylight hours. And the Lord fought on behalf of Israel, and Israel fought with the Lord, together with the Lord against the enemy. And we saw there the wonderful interplay between God and God's people, united together, collaborating together against the enemy. And I have a a cool quote here from Erwin Lutzer, who says, Here again, we see the cooperation of human effort and God's power. One might think that when God fights, there'd be nothing for Joshua to do. Just let go and let God. But the promises of God do not exempt us from a battle. They just give us the ability to win the battle. Though God fights for us, He does not fight without us. And it was wonderful to see that Joshua had to put his hand to the sword and the, and the children of Israel, and yet the Lord was fighting on their behalf. Now, the weight of the battle depended upon the Lord. We must always remember that. The victory is His. The weight of the battle depends upon Him, but He works with us, not independent of us in those circumstances. And I sort of posed this question last week, and I want us to think about it again. What's it going to take for you to get the victory today? Joshua said, we want the victory today. And he knew what it took. It's going to take more daylight. And he had the boldness and the faith to ask the Lord. In your life, with whatever you're going through, some of you are in the battle of your life. What's it going to take for you to get the victory today? That is something you can be greedy for, the victory. What is it going to take for you to get the victory today? What needs to happen? Are you even able to see it? You know, sin has a blinding effect in the life of the believer. It really does. It has a a blinding effect. And sometimes we're not even able to see the defeat. We're not even able to see the breaches in the wall and those broken down areas. And we have to say to the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, come and illuminate for me. Come and reveal to me those areas that are broken down that need to be built up. Those breaches, those breaks in the line where I haven't held the line where the enemy has crept in and gotten a foothold and perhaps even a stronghold. Lord, show me those areas in my life and then help me to get the victory. Lord, what needs to happen in my life to get the victory today? And then partner with the Lord to get the victory today. The Lord is coming soon, amen. Amen. There is much to be done for the kingdom of God, Amen. amen. So why not get the victory today? I believe by faith that people are going to get set free today. Whatever that means in your life, Some of you might be in bondage. Some of you might just have a radical stronghold of the enemy in your life. I believe people are going to be set free by the Spirit of God today. But you've got to recognize, you've got to realize, and you've got to come before the Lord and say, Lord, help me. You've got to be partnered with the Lord and no longer partnered with the enemy. You see, long as we allow a breach in the line, a break in the line, and an open door for the enemy, we're, we're in a certain degree as believers in partnership with Him, allowing Him a place in our life. We need to shut that off and shut that down. We need to partner with the Lord for the fullness and the freedom that are ours in Christ Jesus. And you know, this is our 17th Bible study in the book of Joshua. Our 17th Bible study in the book of Joshua. And it's all about victorious Christian living. And for 17 Bible studies, that's over 17 hours worth. The Lord has been training our hands for battle. And it's time for us to ask ourselves as individuals and as a church, what's changed in our lives? And those 17 hours of training, you know, with less training, you can jump out of an airplane solo with less training. By the way, I jumped out of an airplane last week. I uh, went, uh, uh, what do you call it? skydiving i went skydiving uh some brother and sister from the church bought me a skydiving trip because i'm doing their wedding ceremony and i went skydiving last week it was awesome i recommend you do it (laughs) but with less training than we've had in the word of god you can jump out of an airplane and so i believe that our spiritual growth ought to be discernible and measurable over a period of time amen why not what stagnate no not stagnate Not just hold ground. We certainly don't want to be losing ground. There ought to be some measurable growth in over 17 hours of training in victorious Christian living. And so listen, no big deal, man. Just come before the Holy Spirit sometime today and say, Okay, Lord, where have I grown? Thank you for it. Where do I need to grow? Help me with it. Because the Bible says that all scripture is inspired by God and it's profitable or useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be adequate and equipped for every good work. And this is the season, this is the moment for the people of God to be equipped for good works. Now is the time to put your hand to the plow. It's not tomorrow, it's not when, it's not maybe. It's now is the time to serve the Lord. Whatever that means in your context, your service to God won't look like mine. It's going to be different. Mine won't look like yours. Yours may may be in the immediate context of your family. It may be strictly with your children. It may be in your workplace, in your cubicle, in your office. It may be at the school. It may be down at the beach with the kids that you surf with. Whatever your sphere of influence is, now's the time to represent Jesus Christ. And the best way that we represent Jesus Christ is by living a victorious life. That is the best witness. And so we're going to gain a few more tools as we go further in the text today, last week looking at verses 1 through 14, we saw the battle unfold and by the power of God and his own tenacity, Joshua got the victory. We pick up the story right there in verse 15. It says, then Joshua and all Israel with him returned to the camp at Gilgal. Now these five kings had fled and hidden themselves in the cave at Makada. And it was told, Joshua saying, the five kings have have been found hidden in the cave at Makeda. However you say it. And Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard them. Verse 19. But do not stay there yourselves. Pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. And it came about when Joshua and the sons of Israel had finished slaying them with a very great slaughter until they were destroyed and the survivors who remained of them had entered the fortified cities, that all of the people returned to the camp, uh, to Joshua at Makeda in peace. No one uttered a word against any of the sons of Israel. Then Joshua said, open the mouth of the cave and bring out these five kings. And they did so and brought the kings out to him from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish, and the king of Eglon. And it came about when they brought these kings out to Joshua, that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone with him, Come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Verse 25 Joshua said to them, don't fear, be dismayed, be strong and courageous for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies with whom you fight. So afterward, Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hanged them on five trees and they hung on the trees until evening. And it came about at sunset that Joshua commanded, And they took them down from the trees and threw them into the cave where they had hidden themselves and put large stones over the mouth of the cave and they are there to this very day. Wow. That's a radical story. That's a bloody story. That's warfare. Now, our warfare is not against flesh and blood, but powers and principalities and authorities of wickedness, spiritual forces of wickedness, Satan and his demons. But there are some good insights for the way that Joshua dealt with this physical battle that will train us in dealing with our spiritual battles. By the way, spiritual battles manifest themselves in the physical realm. The root of them is spiritual. And so the solution to them is spiritual. But it doesn't mean that it will be without a physical manifestation. Now the first thing that I want to point out to you that Joshua did is in verse 25. Where he said, don't fear, be dismayed, be strong and courageous. For thus the Lord will do to all your enemies. Notice now that Joshua is teaching others what God has taught him. Aren't those the very words that the Lord said to Joshua in Joshua 1? The Lord said over and over to him, don't be fearful or dismayed, be strong and courageous. The Lord had instructed Joshua in this principle. Joshua had learned it to the degree that he could now instruct others. And there is a very important Christian principle. Because we are, every one of us, is called to making disciples Making disciples. That means discipleship. That means imparting to others what the Lord has imparted to us. Ministering to others in the way that the Lord has ministered to us, either directly or through other people. Call to mind what it says in 2 Corinthians 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforts us And all of our affliction so that we might be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For just as the sufferings of Christ are ours in abundance, so also our comfort is abundant through Christ. That's a wonderful principle. Have you received comfort from God in a time of difficulty? Then extend the comfort of God to someone else in the time of difficulty. It may be that the Lord comforts you directly. Maybe like your David when he was hiding out in the caves from Saul, and he had to encourage himself in the Lord. There was no one there to encourage him. He had to encourage himself in the Lord. And so the Holy Spirit came alongside him and he was encouraged. The Lord was a lifter of his head. And it may be that you're in a place of spiritual maturity that in the difficult times and the scary times and the times of intimidation and uncertainty, you're able to encourage yourself in the Lord. You then have a biblical responsibility and privilege to encourage others who are in need. To minister to others what has been ministered to you. Perhaps someone has ministered to you comfort and mercy and compassion in time of need. Listen, you need to pass that on to somebody else. That is a Christian principle and ideal. It is called discipleship. Giving of what we have received, freely we have received, freely we give. And I have noticed that the more we give, the, Lord, the more the Lord gives us. Haven't you noticed that? The more you pour out into other people, the more the Lord will pour into you. It's like the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea by way of comparison. They both have the Jordan River running into them, a good, healthy, fine river. We're going to see it together in September when we go there. The Sea of Galilee is teeming with life. It is is living. It is vibrant. It is a place of resource and livelihood because not only does the water of the Jordan flow into it, but the water of the Jordan flows out to it. The Dead Sea, by way of comparison, is the lowest place on the face of the earth. And so the Jordan River can flow in, but there's no possible way for it to flow out. And so what happens when there's only an inflow, stagnation, and subsequent death? Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. Nothing lives in the Dead Sea. There is only an inflow, but there is no outflow. God has designed you and I as vessels of earth and clay. To have the inflow of the Holy Spirit and the subsequent outflow of ministry into people's lives. And the more that we flow out, the more that he will pour in. And the more that there is the pouring in and the pouring out, the healthier and more lively we are in Christ Jesus. Some of you might feel stagnant in your walk right now. You're like, gee whiz, we've been studying Joshua for 17 weeks. I feel like I haven't gone anywhere. Well, maybe it's time you start serving somebody. Maybe it's time you start pouring out. You will stagnate if you have no outflow. Your outflow won't look like mine, but you do have one that the Lord is waiting for you to walk in. Second Timothy 2 speaks about the discipleship process, verses one and two. "You therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. And the things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, these entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Has the Lord taught you you some cool things? Have you learned some neat things from somebody? Then look for someone else that you can teach those things to in return. That is the biblical principle of discipleship. Paul says, Timmy, what I've taught to you, you teach to some faithful men who will teach to someone else. And then we have the expansion of the kingdom of God and the mutual growth of the body. That is God's design. Get in the flow of it, amen? So Joshua here is teaching others what God had taught him at a pivotal moment with boldness. The second thing that we ought to look at here is the fact that Joshua and his leaders made what is historically called a public spectacle of the enemy. Look at that in verse 24. Joshua 10, 24. And it came about when they brought these these kings out to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the chiefs of the men of war who had gone out with him, come near and put your feet on the necks of these kings. So they came near and put their feet on their necks. Now that is what would happen in those days when you conquered over an opposing army. You as the commander and your officers of the victorious army had the privilege of bringing forth the highest ranking living leaders from the other army, putting them on their faces in the dirt before your army, and standing on the back of their neck and rubbing their faces into the ground. It was a a public show of humiliation, of defeat on their part, and victory on your part. This is historically what was done when one army conquered over another. And Joshua says, come here, let's engage in this protocol. You chiefs of my army, stand on the back of the necks of these five kings. And they put their feet on the back of their necks, and I don't think they were ginger about it. I don't think they were timid about it. They'd stand on the back of the necks, and they push the jaw of those kings right into the dirt. Now, that is exactly what God did to Satan through the cross of Jesus Christ. It is a declaration of the defeat of the enemy and the victory of King Jesus. It says this very thing in Colossians 2.15. When he, that is God, had disarmed rulers and authorities, that is Satan and his demons, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Jesus. So the Bible declares that this thing that Joshua did to these five Amorite kings is what God the Father did. To our enemy Satan through the cross of Jesus Christ. And that because of that, we now understand that Satan is, is disarmed and he is defeated. He is a defeated foe. But we must understand what that means and what that does not mean. And this is part of having our hands trained for spiritual battle. What does it mean that Satan is a defeated foe? Well, first of all, here's one thing that it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that at this moment in history, Satan can do nothing. It does not mean that he is absolutely rendered powerless at this time. That ought to be obvious to you and I. Because you and I are saying, okay, I understand theologically that he's a defeated foe, but boy, he had been messing with me this week. You understand that to be true. Here's a situation that we need to understand. God's big plan is still in progress. It is still unfolding. Realize that we have been saved as Christians. Amen? We have been saved. It is done. Paid in full. It is finished. We have been saved but the fullness of our salvation is not yet experienced. We have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are daily being saved from the power of sin. And when Jesus comes, we will be saved from the presence of sin. We have been justified by the blood of Jesus Christ. We are daily being sanctified by the work of the Holy Spirit. And when Jesus comes, we will be glorified when we go to heaven with Him. You see, the salvation is already done, but it is still in progress. It is a process. We are positionally finished, but we are in the midst of God's unfolding plan, salvifically speaking. Now, it's the same thing with the enemy, he has already been defeated. He is currently having to be submitted to Jesus Christ. And there is coming a time where he will be obliterated. But you see, it's a process. And the end is not yet. We say this in our myopic vision. In our little slice, we say this. Why then, if Satan is a defeated foe, then why doesn't he just be done away with once and for all? He will be. The end just is not yet. It seems like a long time for you and I because we are temporal, but God is outside of time and space. It's just like this. You know what I mean? So he is a defeated foe. He is submitted now to the authority of Jesus Christ. And yet allowed a degree of activity until the day when he is thrown into the lake of fire. So it does not mean that at this moment in history Satan can do nothing. The story's not over yet. But it does mean that his fate is sealed. Revelation 20.10 Here's the fate of the devil. It says in Revelation 20.10 And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and brimstone and will be tormented day and night forever and ever. The devil will be tormented day and night forever and ever. People have the wrong concept about hell. They think, well, hell's a place where it's kind of like a big party, and you know, the bad, gnarly partiers went there, and Satan is the MC. No. The Bible declares that hell is not Satan's domain. Hell is Satan's place of torment. He is tormented there. And those who reject Jesus Christ by way of default choose to follow the Father of lies and will themselves go there. But God desires that none should perish, but all would come to everlasting life through Christ Jesus. But hell was not even created for men and women. It was created for Satan and his demons. And when the end comes, when we are in glory, he will be in fire. That is the end of the story. And you've heard that wonderful old saying, "The, the next time Satan reminds you of your nasty past, you remind him of his nasty future. So it doesn't mean that Satan is defeated, it does not mean that he does nothing right now, but it does mean that his fate is sealed. It also means that Satan has no power over your eternal position. Very important. The fact that he has been disarmed means he has no power over your eternal position as a Christian. What does it say in Colossians 1, 13 through 14? It says, for He delivered us from the domain of darkness, that is God, delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Once you have been saved and really saved by the blood of Jesus Christ, you are forever saved and there is nothing the devil can do about it. Jesus says, I got you in my hand, and the Father's got his hand, and nobody could snatch you out of the Father's hand. Satan has no power or authority over your eternal position. He cannot remove your sonship, He cannot remove your inheritance in Christ Jesus. He cannot remove from you the promise of eternity. That is sealed in Jesus Christ. We have been delivered from the domain of darkness once and for all and transferred to the kingdom of the beloved Son. That's good news. So the worst thing that Satan can do then in this life and what he will seek to do then in this life is to complicate the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ and to try to rob your joy that comes with the position of being a child of God. He wants to complicate the simplicity of faith in Jesus Christ and rob your joy that comes with the position of being a child of the Most High God. And so because of that, we are engaged in a battle with Him. He will come against those who are redeemed. He cannot remove us from the place of redemption, but He wants to complicate and befuddle. And we need to realize that the fact that He's a defeated foe, lastly here, does not mean that you are automatically immune to his schemes and tactics. It certainly does not mean that Satan is a defeated foe. It does not mean that the moment you get saved, there's just some magic shield around you. Now there is a miraculous shield available to you. That's the shield of faith. And we have been given tools with which to re- withstand the wiles of the devil. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But we need to understand this. As Christians, we are not automatically immune to his schemes and tactics. Now, he's got no legal authority or right to take place in your life unless you surrender it to him. The only foothold that the devil can gain in the life of the Christian is the area that is surrendered to him. Because we and the person and the authority in the name of Jesus Christ have been given authority over the devil. He's got no right over us because of who Jesus is and because of the fact that we're in Jesus. But he is a squatter. If you give him an inch, he'll come looking for a mile. And if you give him a foothold, he will seek to make it a stronghold. You see, he has been defeated and disarmed, but we sometimes give him position and ammunition. And that's a ridiculous thing to do. You do not arm the enemy. You do not give the enemy ammunition, and you do not give him a position. But so often, through willful disobedience to the Lord, we give the enemy ammunition and position. A great example of that is in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 26 through 27, where it says, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, thereby giving the devil an opportunity. That is to say, when we continue in willful sin and willful disobedience, it opens a door of opportunity to the devil in our lives. That word translated opportunity in the New American Standard Bible is the Greek word tapas. It means place. If you continue in willful disobedience when the Lord has revealed to you the right thing to do, you give the devil a place in your life. You give him permission, so to speak, to come and grab ground. And if he could grab ground, he's going to want to hold ground. And when he holds ground, he's going to want to tie down and tie up and bring the Christian into some degree of bondage. That's why it is very important that we seek to follow and obey the Lord because it keeps us in the place of safety and health and blessing. Willful disobedience gives the devil an opportunity. He has no legal right or authority. The devil cannot harm the Christian who is not chosen to harm himself. We need to be very mindful of that. We need to understand that we're engaged in a battle and Satan wants to do everything that he can to rip us off of the fullness and the blessings and the joy. Now we're going to continue on how to deal with that in a minute. But what I want you to notice with right, notice right here is our third point. Joshua was ruthless with the enemy. He was ruthless with the enemy. We saw it in those verses where he says, bring bring the kings out of the cave. Okay, stand on the back of their necks. What's he do next? Then Joshua struck them and put them to death and he hung them on five trees until evening. And then he said, now bring them down and then threw them back in the cave where they were hiding and then threw big rocks on top of them. It's just gnarly. Bring them out of the cave. Stand on their neck. Bring them over here. Good. Kills them. Hang them in the tree. Bring them down. Throw them in the cave. Throw rocks on them. You're just like, wow, dude, that's like rated R. Chill out. That's so gnarly. The point is this, and this is for our spiritual training. Joshua was ruthless with the enemy. We need to be ruthless with the kings of sin in our life. These were these five kings that were coming against God's purposes and God's people. We need to be ruthless with the kings of sin in our lives. Those things that seem to be ruling in our territory. Those things that have taken a place of rulership in the territory that God has given you in your life, in your Christian life, in your family, in your sphere of influence. Those footholds, those strongholds, those points of entry that the enemy has gotten, we need to be ruthless with those. You see, he he should not be in our territory. The will of God was, get those Canaanite Amorite kings out of the land of Canaan. I've given it to Israel. And God has given you an inheritance and a life in Christ Jesus. And you ought not to give any of that ground to the devil. Don't give them any ground in your heart. Don't give them any ground in your mind. Don't give them any ground in your life. Don't give them any ground with your kids or your wife. Don't give them any ground. Be ruthless with the kings of sin in your life. Identify those squatters, those encroachments, those footholds, those strongholds. Identify them and then go on the offensive against them. Quote here from Alan Redpath, his glorious book, Victorious Christian Living. He says, Every gain I have made in Christian character will be resisted by the devil down to the end of life's journey. And there will be no personal experience of the power of Jesus Christ in victory until I declare war on sin. I ask you in the name of heaven, are you attacking on all fronts? Have you identified yourselves by declaring war on pride, war on self, war on the tongue, and on criticism by determining to attack and to conquer them in the name of Jesus? You have a constant attitude to maintain and a victory to claim. Oh man, I like it. We need to identify The entry points, the footholds, the strongholds, those areas where the enemy is trying to monopolize. And we need to go on the offense against them. And we need to be ruthless with sin in our lives. I mean, ruthless with sin in our lives. The first thing is this. Joshua went on the offensive against the enemy. In verses 16 and 17, he heard where the kings were. He goes after them. Then in verse 18... He says, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and assign men by it to guard it. And then in verse 19, but do not stay there yourselves, pursue your enemies and attack them in the rear. Do not allow them to enter their cities for the Lord, your God has delivered them into your hand. Here we see Joshua instructing Israel to take an offensive position against the enemy. An offensive position. Says in verse 19 pursue your enemy, attack them from the rear, do not allow them to enter back into the cities that they're trying to flee to. Joshua put Israel on the offense. Now, as Christians, and I referenced this earlier, we have defensive tools, the armor of God, and these are of value to be sure. And and that is part of how we're able to resist the devil. It says in Ephesians 6, Put on the full armor of God that you may be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to resist in the evil day. And so we have the helmet of salvation. We've got the breastplate of righteousness, the belt of truth, the shoes of peace, and the shield of faith. These are all defensive implements or tools. There is a promise that comes along with these defensive tools in verse 16 of Ephesians 6 where it says, with these things we will be able to extinguish all the flaming missiles of the evil one. So we have a great defense as Christians. And we spoke about the detail of those things in a previous study. I'm not going to belabor it here. But there is a wonderful defense available to us in the armor of God. And the promise that goes along with those is that with that defense, we can extinguish the offensive attacks of the enemy. Now, defense is good and necessary, but it is never the whole game. Defensive players on a football team love to say, defense wins the game. Pastor G says it every football game, because when he played football in high school, he was on the defensive line. And so every football game that I've ever seen with him is defense that wins the game, baby. Is defense that wins the game. He played defense. They love to say that. Now listen, that is only true if your offense puts some points on the board. You could have the greatest defense in the world. But unless the offense puts some points on the board, at best you will have deadlock. And you, Christian, are not called to be in deadlock with the enemy. So you cannot simply maintain a defensive posture against the schemes of the enemy in your life, your family, and your community. Without an offense, that is at best deadlock. And I don't want to be deadlocked with him. I want to get the victory over him. And so we need to get offensive. And God gives us offensive weapons. He gives us the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. It's the Spirit's sword, the Word of God. It's not our sword. It's the sword of the Spirit. The Spirit wields it on our behalf. It is the Spirit of God who convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness, and judgment. We speak the Word of God, we teach the Word of God, we proclaim the Word of God, but the Spirit of God causes it to operate like a sword, decapitating the enemy. There we see ourselves in partnership with the Spirit of God as Israel was in Joshua 10. We have that offensive tool, the Word of God. And when Satan was uh, tempting Jesus, Jesus responded every single time with the Word of God, the sword of the Spirit. That is an offensive weapon. By the proclamation, by the declaration, by the speaking forth, by the standing on, the Word of God. We can take ground back from the enemy that is not his. It is offensive. It puts points on the board. The other offensive weapon that we have is that of prayer. Reference in 2 Corinthians chapter 10. It says that prayer is mighty before God for the destruction of strongholds or fortresses. The enemy comes into a life, or a family, or a community, and he gets an inroad, and he establishes a foothold, and then a stronghold, or a fortress. And we have our eyes opened by the Spirit of God, and we see what the enemy is doing, occupying land and territory that is not his, and we say, what do we do? Well, we have the weapon of prayer. And it is powerful, literally in the Greek, powerful with God. Divinely powerful for destroying strongholds. That is, speculations and lofty ideas and ideologies that exalt themselves against the knowledge of God. And there's a whole lot of them in our community. And we have the power of prayer. If the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit, prayer is like the nuclear bomb. Destroys fortresses. And so Joshua in verse 19 sends the people on the offense. If we're going to experience victorious Christian life, we cannot simply maintain a defensive posture. To resist the enemy does not merely mean to be in defensive posture. It means, yes, you resist with your defensive weapons, a shield of face, so on and so forth, and then you move forward with your offensive weapon. You use your defense and you move forward with the offense. Both must be employed if we're going to win the game. And so in verse 19, Joshua says to Israel, pursue your enemy, attack them from the rear, literally in the Hebrew, smite them in the tail. I like that. The devil doesn't actually have a tail. That's like made up, but I like that. Kick the devil in the tail. Smite him in the tail. Cut off his tail. Go on the offense. Pursue your enemies. Attack them from the rear. Look at the third point that he says to them. Do not allow them to reoccupy. They wanted to go back to those cities and and, and grab their stuff and grab the land. And Joshua says, the Lord has given you the victory, Israel. Do not stand for it. Do not allow them to take that ground. If we're going to experience victory consistently, we're going to need both our defense and our offense in order. And that means that as Christians, we're moving forward individually and corporately. Because do you notice in the armor of God that there's nothing to guard your rear? Did you notice that? There is no armor in the rear in that design by God. That means there's no retreat in the economy of God. That means the kingdom of God is on the advance. The people of God are moving forward. The people of God are claiming the ground of God for the glory of God. And Jesus said, you occupy until I come. That means to tie down, to hold down, to take ground, to monopolize until the Lord comes in the spiritual realm. We do not let the enemy rule. There is no armor in the rear. J. Oswald Sanders says, God makes no provision for armor for the back. He expects the soldiers of his army to be on the offensive. God lends no encouragement to us to turn tail and flee from the enemy when the battle grows fierce. That's when we stand firm with a defense and an offense. Now, Jesus said this in Matthew 16, 18. Jesus said, I will build my church. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Gates are a defensive mechanism. Gates are a defensive mechanism. When Jesus said the gates of hell are not going to prevail against the church, that means that the church is to be on the offense against the kingdom of darkness. We're to be on the offense. And when the enemy puts up his defense, it will not prevail against our offense, which is the word of God and prayer to God and the authority of the person of Christ Jesus. And it's very clear from the Lord's statement there that the church is to be on the offensive. And so let's say that you see somewhere in your life or the life of your family or people that you know or your community that the devil or his demons are trying to take ground or hold ground that is not theirs. Just like these Amorite people were trying to do in Canaan. What do you do? Well, the first thing that you do is you serve the devil an eviction notice. You serve him an eviction notice. That's exactly what Joshua said. He said, Don't let them get away. You pursue them. You go tell them what time it is. You serve the devil an eviction notice. Please turn to Luke now, Luke chapter 11. Luke chapter 11, we're going to look at verse 20. The context here is Jesus has been casting out demons. Some people accuse him of doing it according to the power of Satan. That's silly, the Lord says. And then he says in verse 20 of Luke 11, But if I cast out demons by the finger of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Look in verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own homestead, his possessions are undisturbed. But when someone stronger than he attacks him and overpowers him, he takes away from him all his armor on which he had relied and distributes his plunder. Now the strong man here in context in the words of Jesus is a representation of Satan and his demons. But the one who is stronger than he in verse 22 is the God of Israel and his people. The one who is stronger, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. The one who is stronger than the enemy who is called a strong man is God and God in you. And what does it say? But when someone stronger than he attacks him, not defends against, this strong man was already occupying what he believed to be his, but someone stronger than him, the Holy Spirit in you, came and served an eviction notice, came to the ground that the enemy thought was his, and said, I'm sorry, this is no longer your ground, you've been evicted by the blood of Jesus Christ. Goes on the attack, it says. Now, what is the primary way that we do that? Biblically speaking, that is with a verbal rebuke against Satan or demons. Let's say that you identify some area where, where Satan is working, or that demons are present, or that they have a stronghold, or some sort of manifestation. What do you do? You serve him an eviction notice like Jesus did. That is, you cast the demon out and away. That is exactly what Jesus did. You say, I don't want to, that seems like too much. Just be like Jesus. When Jesus encountered demons, he cast them out. We cast them out. We serve them in eviction. how did Jesus do it? Every time he did it, he did it with a verbal command. You say, well, that was the Lord. Well, wait a minute. Paul in Acts 16, when there was the girl with the spirit of divination, what did he say? I command you, In the name of the Lord Jesus to come out of her. Paul did the same thing. A verbal rebuke and command to the enemy. What would the disciples have done when Jesus sent them out to cast demons out of people? The only model they had was a verbal rebuke against the enemy. There is often within Christianity this idea that, well, we should never talk to the devil. I agree. Don't have a conversation with him. Command him. Don't have a conversation with him. That wouldn't be biblical. But to command him is wholly and unequivocally biblical. It is the only model that we have from Jesus and from Paul. When there was a demonic presence, they commanded the demons to be gone. They served an eviction notice. Now this is different from intercessory prayer. Intercessory prayers is is laboring in the closet, standing in the gap for somebody. This is direct confrontation with the enemy using the word of God, the authority of Jesus Christ and the place of the believer in the kingdom of God. A direct confrontation. Listen, I am not naive as your pastor. I know that there are untold numbers in this church who are dealing with demons. They're messing with your night. They're messing with your family. They're messing with your head. What are you going to do about it? You need to fight. You have been given the resources to fight the enemy. Don't let him exert his authority. You have the authority of Jesus Christ. And that's exactly what you do is you take authority over the enemy in the name of Jesus Christ. In Matthew 3, excuse me, Mark 3, 15, when Jesus called the disciples, he gave them authority to cast out demons. Again, in Mark 6, 7, it says he gave them authority to cast out demons. So when the enemy is trying to occupy, we do what Joshua told Israel to do. We do not allow we serve an eviction notice. We give a verbal rebuke. We claim and speak forth the word of God and we stand in and exert the authority of Jesus Christ. Luke ten eighteen through 19. And the 70, that is the disciples who were sent out on this little mission trip, returned to the, with joy saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. In other words, they said, Lord, you sent us out on this little mission trip and we cast demons out. We had authority over them in your name. Not in their name, not in who they were, in Jesus' name. Meaning in his authority, his character, his identity. And Jesus said to them, hey man, I watched Satan fall from heaven like lightning. I saw the whole gig. Behold, I have given you authority over all the power of the enemy. Now Jesus says authority. It is a Greek word, exousia. It speaks of delegated authority or power. Exousia is a state of control over something, resource to command or govern, the right to control or command. Jesus said, I give you the right to control and command over the power of the enemy. Different word from exousias used there for authority, it is dunamis. It means inherent power or ability. I have given you delegated authority to command over the ability of the enemy. The enemy only has a certain amount of dunamis, ability or power, but I have given you unlimited exousia, that is authority, right and might, to command over him. So why would any Christian ever let the devil push them around? If the Lord has said this, why would we let him take ground jesus said in mark 16:17 and these signs will accompany those who have believed in me in my name in other words in his authority they will cast out demons that was the practice of jesus to cast out demons with a verbal rebuke and command That was a practice of his disciples to cast out, serve eviction notice to demons with a verbal rebuke and command in Jesus' name. That was a practice of Paul and that was a practice of the early church. Look at this quote from Tertullian, one of the early church fathers. I love this. He says about this very subject, he says, all the authority and power that we have over evil spirits is from our naming the name of Christ. "...and recalling to their memory the woes with which God threatens them at the hand of Christ their judge, and which they expect one day to overtake them. Fearing Christ in God and God in Christ, they become subject to the servants of God and Christ." So at one touch and breathing, overwhelmed by the thought and realization of those judgment fires, they leave at our command the bodies they have entered, unwilling and distressed and before your very eyes put to open shame. It was a practice of Jesus, of the disciples, of the Apostle Paul, and of the early church. It ought to be the practice of the church today. That where there's a demonic stronghold, we serve eviction notices. And what we need to do is to make the potential victory actual and operative in our lives. J. Oswald Sanders says that we need to personally and definitely exercise the spiritual authority Christ has given to us. If you are his disciple, he has given you authority in the spiritual realm. Uh, Erwin Lutzer Joshua proves that when we know the promises of God and are convinced of the power of God, we can exercise the authority of God. That is for every single believer, every single Christian. And so, when the enemy's doing something, we tell them to go away and to stay away. Go away and to stay away. I, I found in my own life, when I've had to deal with these things, that the last part is very important. Go away and you cannot come back. In the authority of Jesus Christ, you cannot come back. Go away. Look what it says in verse 24 of Luke 11. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places seeking rest. That's a picture of the idea that the demon is unhappy when it doesn't have somebody to occupy. Waterless places, unsatisfactory places for that demon looking for rest. It wants to rest in a place where it can control. And not finding any, it says, I'm going to return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds a house swept and put in order, and Matthew 44, or Matthew 12:44 adds, "An unoccupied," verse 26. Then it goes and takes along seven other spirits more evil than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So we need to evict the enemy. We need to tell the enemy at the name of Jesus and the power of Jesus and the blood of Jesus and the cross of Jesus Christ that he must leave and go away and that he cannot come back. Because it says here he wants to come back. He wants to come back. And so here's how we close the door to him coming back, two ways. Number one, we repent of any sin or the person that we're ministering to, we have them repent of any sin that may have given the opportunity to the enemy. Repent, not, I'm sorry, Lord. Not that, repent to change direction, to shut the door to the enemy. And then we ask for the filling and the presence of the Holy Spirit. It says here, and in the parallel account of Matthew 12, that if the house is is simply swept and put in order, if it's, uh, you know, set in some religious order and cleaned up, but still unoccupied, But the demon comes back with seven more who are more powerful than he. And the destruction is worse than the first. And so there needs to be repentance and then the asking for the presence and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now that's not difficult. Every one of us can walk in the authority of Jesus Christ and get the victory today. Joshua did it. Jesus did it, Paul did it, the disciples did it, the early church did it, we ought to do it. And so you just begin to identify any, any place where you see the enemy working and you start serving eviction notices. You start standing firm against him with the defense and the offense. And let's be done with him. Let's get him out of our lives, out of our church, out of our town, in Jesus' name, amen. Lord, we thank you so much for the authority that you've given us. That because we are your children, we're able to stand in the authority of who you are and experience the victory. Lord, we people today, we need victory over the enemy. We don't want to be intimidated by him anymore. He prowls around like a roaring lion shooting off his mouth. We ought to be declaring with our mouths the word of God and the victory of the cross. Loosen our lips. Bolden our hearts to take authority to stand firm. Help us, Holy Spirit, to identify any strongholds where the enemy is trying to hold ground. Teach us to get the victory today, to say no simply, to repent, to seek the presence and the filling of the Holy Spirit. Help us with these things, Lord. Some of you here today, you you know that you got some of this stuff going on, just demonic influence happening in your life and you need help. Pastors and prayer team are up there today to help you. You go to them, you tell them what's up. Hey man, I think the enemy's working me in this area. I want to be free from it. And they'll help you. And I believe that you'll get free today. Lord, give us faith to believe you for the victory. Jesus, you are the victorious warrior. You are the great and conquering king. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. You've not given us a spirit of fear, but a power and love and a sound mind. Lord Jesus, come. Move in the midst of your people now. Work the victory in our lives, Lord. If you need help, the prayer team is here. Victory is ours.